0: Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Medical rewrites,
1: medical. Rewrites. Hello and welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I am Megan Jeffries. The rewrite today is for Knives Out, and it's a banger. The deep dive is all about pain management of musculoskeletal injuries. Please note this podcast contains super big spoilers, really all the spoilers. Do not continue if you have not watched this movie. I cannot stress this enough. Don't ruin this cinematic journey for yourself. It's so good. This episode also discusses an opiate overdose. If this is distressing, this might be an episode to skip. Knives Out was released in 2019, a budget of $40 million. Bring in $311 million. IMDb rates it a 7.9 out of 10, so pretty big ups from IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes, even better. Critics rate it a 97%, audience at a 92%. So I cannot stress enough that you should pause right now if you have not seen this movie. All spoilers are coming thick and fast, and because this is a whodunit movie, it will absolutely ruin your first watch of this rewrite. Final warning, because we're going to start this episode with the final reveal The famous detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, is summarizing his findings of how Harlan, played by Christopher Plummer, died. His audience are police officers and Marta, who's played by Anna D'Armas. Ransom, who's played by Chris Evans, is also present because Blanc is trying to set him up to confess.
0: Marta, I'm so sorry. I told them everything. I figured it was up. I'm sorry.
1: it's all right, Ransom. I'm glad you did.
0: Not exactly everything, though.
2: Is this about what Grey Nana told you? She saw me that night. She mistook me for Ransom.
0: We'll get to that. In the meanwhile, Mr. Hugh Ransom Drysdale, you might tell us all why you hired me. Why I hired you. You're right. Let's back it up. To the night of the party, your argument with Harlan. What were the overheard words by the Nazi child masturbating in the bathroom? My will, then. I'm warning you. You and Harlan were drama mamas. You shared a love of twisting the knife into one another. You see, I don't believe he would have slipped it in halfway. No, no, no. I submit. Harlan told you everything.
3: You can't be serious! Not a red dime or word of my work to a single one of them. You included. Marta,
0: remind me what Ransom said his conversation with Harlan ended with.
2: Harlan told him that I could beat him at Go.
0: And I asked myself, Marta? <laughs> How would the topic of the will have steered around to Marta? There is one. Obvious explanation
3: you can't be that crazy. You're not just gonna throw away your fortune. No, I'm giving it to Marta all of it <laughs> Your Brazilian nurse are you goddamn insane? I'm sane for the first time in my life Harlan, if you And i going done let it. this
0: happen if you think I made gonna the change to watch... my will it's
3: done I'm warning you
0: That's some heavy-duty conjecture granted But it is the only way what comes next makes sense so you storm out, you drive off into the night. You tell Marta later uh, what was it, feeling an overwhelming sense of...
2: Clarity. That he had to make do for himself from here on out.
0: Exactly. Marta, the Will, Harlan, do for yourself. You won't get away with this. And a plan forms. careful to avoid the gate security camera range. Then on foot up towards the house, you sneak in up the trellis so as not to be seen by the rest of the family who are still having their party downstairs. What you need to do will take moments, but it is essential that you are alone and undetected. You knew what medications Harlan took. You knew what Marta would be injecting him with that night. You know, if Marta was responsible for his death, even unintentionally, the slayer rule would nullify the change will and you would get your share back. You used the syringes in the kit to switch the liquids in the two medication vials. And as a final precaution, you took the naloxone. The life-saving antidote.
2: No, 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 that's impossible.
0: It is the truth. Hand me that vial of morphine.
2: I'll show you. If if he did that, if the meds were switched, then when I got them mixed up, I... I accidentally switched them back, so... I gave Harlan...
0: The correct doses. Yes. But not accidentally. I taped over the label of these two vials. The vials themselves are identical. How'd you know this was the morphine? I just knew. You knew because there is the slightest, almost imperceptible differences of tincture and viscosity between the two liquids. You knew because you'd done it a hundred times. You gave him the correct medication because you are a good nurse.
1: Knowing that this scene is the final crescendo of the movie, the rewrite needs to fit into this beautiful monologue from Blanc. So we can back up to act one of the movie where we have a scene and this is ripe for a rewrite. Marta has just drawn up and administered two IV slow pushes I'm guesstimating of around three-ish mils of a medication. The label on the medication is purposefully obscured. We, the audience, know that there are two vials of medication that Marta's removed from the medicine bag. The two meds look very similar. They're both 10-mil vials with blue labels and white lettering. One is morphine, 5 milligrams per mil, and one is Ketorolac at 30 milligrams per mil. It's after these two IV pushes are given that Marta and Harlan talk about his meds.
2: Hey. You had a long day, you wanted the drugs.
3: You mean the good stuff? Yeah. <laughs> oh, come and send me to, uh, la la la. Just a
2: tiny bit, okay?
3: Why did I wait till my mid ages to become a morphine user? What a schmuck, what a nudnik. <laughs> this stuff is the best.
1: Oh my God.
3: Is there a problem?
2: This is what I just give you 100 milligrams of. I messed up.
3: You gave me 100 milligrams of the good stuff. <laughs> um, excuse me, but, but what is the good stuff's dosage supposed to be?
2: Let's not call it that right now, okay? Three milligrams.
3: Oh, that's much less. So what happens?
2: I'm going to give you an emergency shot of Naloxone so you don't die in ten minutes.
3: Oh, well, no pressure. (laughs) You you know, this is an interesting and efficient method of murder. I I need to write this down. So, if someone switched the meds on purpose, I'd be dead in ten minutes. Like stone cold dead?
2: Yes, your full symptoms in five, sweats, disorientation, and then... Yes, that big dose injected within ten, you're... Your brain is. Yes, ten
3: minutes yeah, from the moment of injection. Now, it's eightish now. And even if the victim called for an ambulance when he first felt the symptoms, and if he lived in a great big country house like we do, the ambulance would take at least fifteen minutes to arrive and then it would be too late. If the victim didn't have the emergency Maxis stuff. Marta. Do you have an extra stuff? Yes,
2: I'm gonna find it. I have it because it it comes with the kids. It should be here, it has to be. It's like a... (sighs) He's not here, Harlan. I don't know why he's not here. So I'm gonna use the
1: phone, okay? It's rough to listen to Marta describe the symptoms of an opiate overdose as sweats and disorientation, and I think she's going to say brain death, but something about brain, and then she sort of stutters, but that's what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. But we have bigger fish to fry in terms of what needs a rewrite. The next five minutes of the movie, Harlan remains alive and tells Marta how to get away with murder by avoiding being the suspect in his seemingly unavoidable death. Harlan shows no symptoms of sedation or respiratory depression, usually seen in the setting of a 100 milligram morphine dose in a patient that's accustomed to only three milligrams. But we digress. The next scene, Marta's being interviewed by Blanc and giving a play-by-play of the evening that Harlan died. She's trying to give him the sequence of events with enough truth as to not vomit because she's got this anxiety vomit thing going on. And as well as to the local police officers.
2: I took him upstairs. We played our nightly game of go. At some point, he knocked the board over, and uh, Joni came up to check on us. Um, I gave him pain medication. He pulled his shoulder last week, um, and uh, I left him in his study. At midnight, I said goodbye to Walt, went home.
0: What kind of medication did you give him?
2: Since his injury, I've been giving him a hundred milligram IV push of Toradol. It's a non-narcotic analgesic. And to help him sleep, three milligrams of morphine.
0: And the family was aware of this?
2: Yes, of course.
0: Did you notice anything strange or off about his demeanour? Well, that sounds about right. Thank you, Ms. Cabrera.
1: And here is our big fish to fry. IV ketorolac for a pulled shoulder and IV morphine for sleep. Wowza. Let's start with pain management for musculoskeletal injuries. I think that's a fair assumption based on what Marta calls a pulled shoulder. There are two national guidelines for pain management for acute musculoskeletal injuries, the Orthopedic Trauma Association Musculoskeletal Pain Task Force. Those guidelines were published in 2019. The task force consisted of 15 members with expertise in orthopedic trauma and or pain management, none of which were pharmacists, side note. The time of the literature search was through September 2018. The grade for each recommendation was strong or conditional, A strong recommendation was defined as practices in which benefits are sure to outweigh potential harms. Conditional was defined as weaker evidence or if the benefits do not significantly outweigh potential harms. Topics covered in the guidelines are cognitive strategies, physical modalities, opiate safety and effectiveness, multimodal pharmaceutical strategies, medical assistance therapy, NSAIDs and fracture healing, nerve regional field blocks, pain sedation assessment strategies and healthcare system strategies. That is a ton of topics, and not all of them get a ton of space in these guidelines. Each of these could obviously be its own guideline, but they're generously, I would say, summarized here. A brief summary maybe, the better descriptor. The goal of the task force was to produce a comprehensive guideline for the management of acute musculoskeletal pain. I'm going to argue here that that goal was not met, but I'll show you why. The introduction of the guidelines focuses on negative outcomes associated with opiate use. Some highlights worth repeating, patients who receive a first opiate prescription of any duration, 21% progress to receive more prescriptions episodically and 6% progress to long-term use. Up to half of patients who take opiates for the first three months remain on opiates five years later. That is rough. Those patients are more likely to become lifelong users. The body of the guidelines is all text about the topics that I just listed. However, there are a couple of tables. Tables two and three consist of opiate and non-opiate pain med tapers for major injury or minor injury after a procedure. That is not well distinguished because they're arguably talking about a surgical procedure. The tapers are broken down into week segments with new treatments recommendations for each week post-procedure. The tables are well organized and contain full treatment regimens, including medication dose, frequency, and duration, so shout out for that. Table 4 is where Harlan would fit in, and it's titled, Pain Management Recommendation Taper Following a Non-Operative Musculoskeletal Injury. It is not organized by week, but is instead organized by major or minor injury. Major is defined as a large bone fracture, which sounds like a big deal that would need surgery or rupture, etc. etc. seems to be holding a lot of water here because our only examples are large bone fracture slash rupture, whatever. The list of minor injury examples include small bone fracture, sprain, laceration, and then another etc. Major injury opiate recs include hydrocodone combined with Tylenol at 5 325 milligrams or Tramadol, 50 milligrams one 1Q6PRN. Dispense 20 of these, aka 5 days worth, and then 10 more if necessary, which equals to 2 more days if taken Q6 hours. Minor injury opiate recs are just for Tramadol, same directions. If you could see my face when I first read these guidelines, you would picture a cartoon character in which the mandible has fully detached from the tempo mandibular joint and now rests comfortably on the floor. In my opinion, tramadol is a fully garbage med. If adverse reactions and efficacy were on a teeter-totter, adverse reactions would be represented by Santa Claus, a portly Santa Claus, and efficacy would be represented by the very tiny tooth fairy. I'm going to use the sandwich framework for feedback, positive, negative, positive. The guidelines include sections for several non-pharm approaches for pain management, including non-traditional approaches like music therapy and aromatherapy. The critical meat of this sandwich is substantial. Tables two, three, and four, which contain the pain medication taper tables, are created without the guidance of primary literature, and they're not graded. And typically... It's the tables that only the audience actually uses in a guideline. No one reads the text. We are there for the tables. We're there for the quick and dirty. There is minimal primary data about the efficacy of pain meds. In the text of the guidelines, the authors sort of address this. They state, the literature comparing the difference in the safety and efficacy of opiates for the treatment of pain in acutely injured musculoskeletal patients is scarce. Yes, agreed. The majority of the literature on safety and efficacy of opiates is in regard to chronic pain from both malignant and non-malignant conditions. There's very little in the literature discussing safety and efficacy of the short-term post-injury setting, hence the appropriate dose for specific injuries or conditions is not well-defined. Right. The authors cite one comparative study that looked at the efficacy of oxycodone plus ibuprofen versus ibuprofen alone versus oxycodone alone in women after abdominal or pelvic surgery. Most of these women got hysterectomies, salpingectomies, or oophorectomies. They use this study to make the statement, combining opiates with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs has been shown to be more effective than opiates alone. So I find the study, I look at it. It is an RCT in women who've received a PCA immediately after surgery when the PCA was then discontinued the next morning. So you kind of SOL if you got an afternoon or a late evening surgery because you only got overnight PCA, but they didn't address that. Apparently everyone gets an AM hysterectomy, I'm not sure. Participants who requested pain meds within six hours after the PCA was turned off received a pain diary and timers. They were asked to record their pain intensity on a four-point scale. Zero was no pain, three is severe pain. Patients that scored a three were then randomized into four different treatment arms Oxy5 with ibuprofen, ibuprofen 400 by itself, Oxy5 by itself, or placebo. The minimum duration of participation was six hours. They screened 633 patients, 454 were randomized, but only 138 completed the study. This represents a 70% dropout rate. of them dropped out because of insufficient pain control. Keep in mind this study included a placebo group, but still the feedback from this trial has to be that the methods did not meet the participant expectation. This is the biggest dropout rate I've ever seen. The primary efficacy variable was total pain relief at 6 hours and the sum of pain intensity differences at 6 hours Each of these variables were calculated using the AUC for pain relief and the pain intensity differences from zero to six hours using the trapezoidal rule. Had a fun good Wikipedia read about that one. I get AUC and I get calculating it using the trapezoidal rule. I am very lost as how they present their final efficacy data, which is least square sum Interpreting this data in any clinical meaningful way is challenging. The figure plots the pain relief score for each group at each hour through hour six of the study. I can get that. The combination group has less of a drop-off in pain control for this six-hour period. Oxycodone alone drops off at hour two, meaning patients received pain control for about two hours, and then their pain control gets worse ibuprofen group drops off around four hours, meaning they got around a four-hour pain relief, and then their pain gets worse. That's essentially the big differences between the groups. Keep in mind, 70% of the patient population has already bailed on this study. So I'm pretty unwilling to embrace the recommendation that NSAIDs plus opiates are better than either alone for the treatment of post-op pain based on this one study. If Harlan's treatment plan followed this guideline, he would have received either Tramadol 50Q6 times 5 days or 7 days, or NSAIDs, PRN, as directed, and the question mark, acetaminophen 1-gram Q12, then PRN, as directed. Bleh. Yuck. Hopefully, moving on up to some better guidelines, let's see if the 2020 American College of Physicians and American Academy of Family Physicians does any better. I think the total number of contributors is 47. I tried to count. They were all physicians except one non-physician representative, which had a JD degree. The scope of the guideline was clinical recommendations on non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic management of acute pain from non-low back musculoskeletal injuries in adults in the outpatient setting, right up Harlan's alley. The recommendation grading system was similar to that other guideline using strong conditional, but also included three categories in terms of certainty of evidence, high, low, and moderate, the group included 207 trials consisting of over 32,000 patients. 48% of studies included a mix of musculoskeletal injuries, 29% enrolled patients with sprains, 6 enrolled those with whiplash, and 5% of those were from muscle strains. So far, feeling pretty good about Harlan being represented in this population. The guideline makes only three recommendations, which is fascinating. Most ID guidelines make at least 58, it feels like. Recommendation number one is rated as a strong REC with moderate evidence, and it says clinicians should treat musculoskeletal injuries with topical NSAIDs with or without menthol gel as first-line therapy to reduce pain, improve physical function, and treatment satisfaction. REC number 2A states is rated as a conditional REC with moderate evidence that says oral NSAIDs or oral Tylenol. 2B says, also a conditional REC, but with low evidence. Treatment with acupressure or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation often breeding as TENS is that recommendation. REC 3, also conditional with low evidence. And Anne, can I get a drum roll? These guidelines recommend to avoid the use of opiates, including tramadol. Two guidelines, one year apart, total contradictory recommendations. The primary outcome that they looked at of pain relief was assessed using 69 different randomized controlled trials It included over 10,000 patients. Specific acupressure was the only effective non farm treatment with moderate certainty and evidence. Low certainty was applied to TENS, interventions that did not show any pain relief compared to placebo ultrasound, ultrasound, nonspecific acupressure exercise, and laser therapy. Pharmacologic treatments with high certainty of evidence are acetaminophen plus opiates, I am fully confused by this recommendation as Tylenol has arguably not been shown to be better than placebo in most things. But again, I'm taking it in, open mind. The silver medal for moderate goes to Tylenol NSAIDs and topical NSAIDs, all solo. Options that didn't show proof of pain relief compared to placebo were Tylenol plus Diclofenac, topical NSAIDs plus menthol, glucosamine, ibuprofen plus cyclobenzaprine, Tylenol plus ibuprofen, Psychobenzoprene by itself, and menthol solo by itself. So this means that there are specific groups of muscular skeletal injuries that respond to treatment options very differently. This has to be a sample problem, not an efficacy problem. It makes no sense that in some studies, Tylenol alone is more effective than placebo, but in other studies, Tylenol plus diclofenac were not more effective than placebo. Same with topical NSAIDs, but not topical NSAIDs with menthol. That would imply that the two treatment options were somehow antagonistic, which is seems unlikely. When physical function was the outcome of effective pharmacological treatments, oral NSAIDs, topical NSAIDs, menthol gel earned moderate certainty of evidence, and Tylenol was no better than placebo. This analysis was repeated for treatment satisfaction and symptom relief, which again showed unexpected efficacy differences between what was effective and what was not. The guidelines also review harms associated with each treatment option, including GI, which included constipation from opiates and bleeding from NSAIDs, so pretty big catch-all under the GI category. They also looked at neurological adverse events and prolonged opiate use. To their immense credit, the guidelines created a three-page infographic summarizing their findings. I would envision this would be printed and hung in clinics and physical exam rooms to remind both prescribers and patients of benefit and harms of different pain management options. The link to everything, as always, is in the show notes, but I'll put a specific notation by this one that has an infographic for it. Missing from these guidelines is the specificity of NSAID and Tylenol dose and frequency. Considering that the harms from these meds are both dose-related, I think it's a big gap. Also missing is risk of organ damage from NSAIDs, mainly GI, renal, and cardiovascular. I suspect that it's these toxicities that have resulted in the topical NSAID getting the big push in terms of the one top recommendation that the guideline made. If Harlowan was following the ACP-AAFP guideline, he would be getting a topical NSAID. Since he's in the U.S., he would be getting diclofenac 1% gel, which is now OTC, by the way. Since topical diclofenac is not indicated for musculoskeletal pain, we have to substitute the directions for osteoarthritis, which would be 2 grams to a shoulder four times daily with a maximum dose of 8 grams per day to any single joint. The off-label recommendation found in Lexicomp is to apply 4 grams to the effective area up to 4 times daily with a max dose of 16 grams per day at a typical site, or 32 grams for the whole body. The biggest tube of topical diglofenac I found was 150 grams. So at max doses, this $135 tube would last you 4.5 days, which is a little quicker than I go through a bottle of ibuprofen. But you can get a 100-milligram tube at cost plus drugs for 17 bucks, which brings down your daily cost to only $5.40 or $162 a month if you're going for max doses. For your money, I'm not sure you're getting a ton of musculoskeletal pain relief. I went to look for recent randomized controlled trials that looked at specifically topical diclofenac. So there was a 2017 RCT that compared the combination of topical diclofenac and menthol gel versus menthol gel versus placebo for pain associated with sprained ankles. There was 117 patients in the combo group, 112 in the diclofenac group, 77 in the menthol group, and 75 in the placebo group. The dose for all of them, obviously, including the placebo, but it was for those that had drug, it was for diclofenac, four grams applied to the ankle four times a day. So a decent dose compared to what is currently out there in terms of recommendations. The primary outcome was pain intensity with movement. There was no statistical difference in primary or secondary outcomes. Of note, the primary outcome was a continuous number, making statistical significance actually easier to find and achieve rather than categorical data. Of note, there was a higher incidence of skin irritation in the diclofenac group, which is not awesome. A 2019 RCT compared topical declofenac gel, ibuprofen gel, and ibuprofen gel with levomenthol for the treatment of pain associated with musculoskeletal injuries. It was an all comers. There was no placebo in this control group, so my skepticism is fully engaged. In all three treatment groups, 80% of patients achieved significant pain relief at two hours. Pain scores dropped from in the sevens to in the fours in all three groups. The mode for pain relief, they had a Likert scale of pain relief that they observed. The group that had the highest Likert score was considerable relief. That was for ibuprofen and levomenthol combo compared to digolfenac, which the mode response was moderate relief, followed by ibuprofen gel, which had an equal distribution between slight relief, mild relief, and moderate relief. So there were like 1% of patients that had complete relief on the highest end of the Likert scale. To give topical diglofenac some flowers, there is an RCT from 2014 that compared topical diglofenac compared to PO for pain from osteoarthritis in the knee. Efficacy was similar between the groups in terms of pain scores and physical function. It was a 12-week study, so that was also good. 30% of patients complained of skin irritation in the topical group but there were less complaints of abdominal pain and dyspepsia than in the oral group. Of note, there were no major injuries in the oral group, considering this was a long-term trial. No one had a GI bleed, no one had kidney failure, no one had a heart attack. Before rewriting Harlan's pain management plan, we need to first look at some Ketorolac primary data. I found two studies relevant to the efficacy of Ketorolac for musculoskeletal pain. The first one's old, it was published in ninety-five but it compared ketorolac 60 to ibuprofen-800 for acute musculoskeletal pain. There were 42 people in the ketorolac group, 40 in the ibuprofen group. Pain was measured using a visual analog scale repeatedly for the next three hours. There were no statistical differences between the groups, but they were too small. The ibuprofen group continued to experience a drop in pain from minute 75 to minute 120, whereas the ketorolac group stabilized after minute 75 The pain didn't increase, but it did not continue to decrease like the ibuprofen group did. The next study was published in 2021, so more recent. It compared the efficacy of a single ketorolac dose of either 60 milligrams or 15 milligrams for acute musculoskeletal pain in patients presenting to a military emergency department. Anyone greater than 55 years old was excluded from this study. That would mean Harlan is out the door, but because 100 milligram ketorolac dose is key to the plot point of Knives Out. We got to sort of address the issue of where they would possibly get this dose from. There were 55 people in each dosing group. The primary outcome was pain on a visual analog scale. Pre-treatment pain scores were a smidge higher in the 15 milligram group. That was at 70 millimeters compared to 66 millimeters in the 60 milligram group. Pain at 30 minutes post-treatment had decreased by 19 millimeters in the 15 milligram group and 17 millimeters in the 60 milligram group. One hour after treatment, the pain had decreased a total of 30 millimeters in the 15 milligram group and 29.9 millimeters in the 60 milligram group. There was a higher frequency of burning at the injection site in the 60 milligram group, but ultimately 60 milligrams is 0% better than 15 milligrams. This means Harlan should have only been getting 15 milligrams for his shoulder pain max, and that he would have been, at the initial time of injury, nothing chronic like Harlan was getting, which brings us to another issue, which is duration of therapy for Cotorilac. Both Lexi and Micromedics state the maximum duration of Cotorilac is five days, but they are light on the rationale this hard stop at 5 days has been enforced at every single hospital i've worked at since 2005 not because anything changed in 2005 that's just the first year that i worked in the hospital The seemingly universal rule is due to a post marketing study analysis published in jama in 1996 which found both a dose dependent and duration dependent increase in gi bleeds with ketorolac compared to opiates treatment durations over 5 days doubled the rate of gi bleed and nearly tripled the risk for clinically important bleeding compared to opiates, which arguably might as well be compared to placebo since opiates do nothing to inhibit gastric mucosal layer. Let's take a quick pharmacology excursion about NSAIDs and upper GI bleeds. So NSAIDs inhibit cyclooxygenase 1 and 2, abbreviated as COX-1 and 2. When not inhibited by NSAIDs, COX-1 and 2 are doing work. They are the enzymes responsible for converting arachidonic acid into prostaglandins, and prostaglandins are responsible for maintaining gastric mucosal integrity. There are other non-prostaglandin mechanisms for gastric and intestinal mucosal injury, but we can only do so much in a single episode. So back to the demise of the chronic Cotorolac. In the post-marketing safety study, the bleeding outcomes for Cotorolac got even worse when you added age as the variable. Patients over 75 years of age were 1.6 times more likely to experience a GI bleed compared to other age groups also receiving NSAIDs. So not compared to opiates anymore, this is compared to other NSAIDs. Since Harlan died on the night of his 85th birthday, he's definitely in this category. I would like to give a huge shout out to Christy Denton. She's a drug information specialist at the University of Illinois who summarized all the available data about the five-day Katorlac rule. I have put her link in the show notes. Her write-up is excellent. For the sake of being complete, but Knowing that I'm at risk of beating a dead horse here, Cotorilac also has some of the highest risk amongst other NSAIDs for causing hospital admission for heart failure. This data is from the European group called Safety of Non-steroidal Anti-Inflammatory Drugs Project Consortium. Just as a quick shout out to Celicoxib, who did not show at risk at all for hospital admissions for heart failure. Love that drug. I feel like we can confidently include that Harlan's pain management regimen of IV Ketorolac 100 milligrams daily is not optimal, but we might have killed him down the road either way through heart failure and upper GI bleed. A much slower, more painful way to go than a knife to the throat. To stick to the key murder plots and use evidence-based medicine, we need a significant rewrite. We have to get rid of the chronic Ketorolac and the Ketorolac dose. We didn't dig into evidence-based medicine for sleep, But we know that opiates are never going to be the right answer here, so that edit is going to go as well. For the rewrites, there are several key plot points that need to be maintained for the movie to work. Number one, the time frame that the accidental overdose creates. According to Harland, an ambulance takes 15 minutes to reach the mansion. The time from injection to death needs to be 15 minutes-ish. But we could stretch that, I think, because we could just change the time frame and put the mansion further out of town because it takes the ambulance longer to get to the house. So that's a little flexible. Number two, we need the medication to look the same. Ransom switches the fluids in each of the vials. A slight difference in viscosity plays into the plot at the end when Blog is explaining why Marta is still a good person and a good nurse, or good caretaker anyways, That would be nice to achieve if possible. Number three, the volume of each dose needs to be similar. This is a sequence error in the original script. The current script has MARTA giving Harlan two slow IV pushes, which I think would represent each medication, as there's no need to give two injections, even to get 100 milligrams of Cotorolac up in Harlan's pick line. For both injections, the syringe is 3 to 5 mils full. The concentration of the Cotorolac is 30 milligrams per mil meaning it should equal about 3.3 mils, which the scene accurately portrays, except that they get two injections, which means the volume should be 1.5 mils each. It's very confusing. Also, don't look at her sterile technique. It's not optimal. Number four, one of the medications needs to be lethal at a high dose. This is the big kahuna. This is the big deal. This is the big crux of the movie. You got to kill the guy. And the vials need to look alike so MARTA can mix them up. Elements that need a rewrite. The medication indications. Harlan's indications for Ketorilec and morphine are a pulled shoulder and in insomnia, neither of which are key to the plot. And both are treated with inappropriate medications and doses. So both those got to go. The other thing that I think is a real pickle is he gets both of these medications through what looks like a pick line. This is annoying script choice since opiates and NSAIDs are obviously available orally and Harlan appears to have a working gut. He drank and ate at his 85th birthday party. So here are some possible fixes. One, give Harlan a reason to have a pick line and identify two medications that would both make sense to give in a pick line. Or two, give the medications orally, sub-Q, or IM. Death within 10 minutes time frame becomes much harder to achieve with non-Ivy routes, but I think it's possible because we have a little wiggle room with our timeline. I would love for you to pause and think about how you would rewrite this and fix the sort of issues that we've got in this plot point. It just took me a hot second to come up with my choice, so I would love to know what other ways to kill Harlan you guys have thought about. My short list of meds for high-dose, quick deaths are opiates and insulin. Both would maintain the 10-minute window of death in which she teaches Marta how to get away with murder, but neither should be administered IV in this setting. No one should get home IV insulin or home IV opiates outside of, again, you know, end-of-life cancer, etc., pain management. The overwhelming majority of insulin vials are still manufactured by non-generic pharma companies. There are some biosimilars, but all the insulin is either packaged in an insulin pen or in a unique looking vial, which is done to increase patient safety, which means Marta wouldn't accidentally mix up the vials and give the correct dose of each medication. Also, if Harlan had diabetes, Marta would be able to use a glucometer to measure his glucose after she accidentally gave him an overdose or thought she gave him an accidental overdose. When the glucose didn't plummet, she would know that Harlan wasn't going to die in 10 minutes. So it sort of leaves us at the door of opiates. Keeping opiates has the bonus of maintaining plot points like Ransom stealing the naloxone and then Marta leaving it for Fran after Ransom killed her with a morphine overdose. But I can't bring myself to recommend IV opiates without giving Harlan big GI problems. That would cause malabsorption or he would be on a strict NPO Scenario. I can't do it. So I'm giving Harlan a backstory of recent dental work and maybe a couple of root canals and giving him some PO opiates. Still a very generous pain management regimen. To make the medications easy for Marta to confuse, I've gone with the look alike, sound alike drugs of oxycodone and oxybutynin. Because Harlan's an old man, lower urinary tract symptoms is very on brand for him. The oxycodone directions seen on the prescription bottle would be five milligrams POQ6 PRN. The oxybutanin bottle will read 30 milligrams POQ24 PRN. Because oxybutanin is a medication that's titrated to efficacy, the pills would be in five milligram increments. The dose of 30 milligrams would be six tablets. If Marta were to give six tablets of oxycodone, five, that would be a 30 milligram dose. It's not the same magnitude in dosing error as the original script, but which should still alarm Marta to make her look for the naloxone, and she would then inform Harlan of, this is an overdose, we're going to give you a rescue med, and then he would say, that's not, I'll just tell you how to get away with murder. Because oxycodone and oxybutin are both white, round tablets, they're differentiated only with tablet markings from their generic factories. Blanc can then still explain that Marta is, in fact, a good person that did subconsciously recognize that the pill markings actually distinguished them, and she gave the right medication in in the end. Those are the rewrites that I have for Knives Out. I'd love to hear what your rewrite of the story is. As always, check out the show notes for references used in this episode. Tell a friend about this episode. Ask them how they would kill Harlan. If you think there's a movie that deserves a rewrite, click the link in the show notes and complete the form. This has been a podcast presentation by me, Megan Jeffries, production and editing by Anne Connolly, the best human in the world. Music by Brandon Meager.